Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series, the number one podcast for brain injury and concussion resources. I am Amy Zellmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I will be talking with former Special Forces engineer Kevin Flake about his story of TBI and PTSD. If you're enjoying this podcast series, be sure to check out my Patreon page to help support my advocacy work and receive exclusive content for Patreon members. This episode is brought to you by Integrated Brain Centers. Located in Denver, Colorado, Drs. Shane Stedman and Perry Maynard are experts in functional neurology and treat complex concussion cases from around the country. With over 20 years of combined experience, they are leaders in helping patients who are suffering from post-concussion symptoms, including dizziness, vertigo, headaches, and more. For your free consultation, you can find them online at integratedbraincenters.com. Hello, I am Amy Zellmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness one podcast at a time. Those of you who don't know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Good Men Project, and I am author of Life with a Traumatic Brain Injury, Finding the Road Back to Normal, available on Amazon. Additionally, I'm editor-in-chief of the Brain Health Magazine, and you can grab your free digital subscription at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. Be sure to save the date for March 16th for my free virtual Brain Injury Awareness Day event. You can register at facesoftbi.com slash event. You can learn more about me and the podcast at facesoftbi.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. I invite you also to join my private Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. Today, my guest is Kevin Flake. Kevin is a Special Forces Engineer assigned to the 1st Special Forces Group and deployed to the Philippines, Thailand, and twice to Afghanistan and was shot and almost died. The severe pain he endured and the tragedy of not having the use of his leg caused severe PTSD. Kevin eventually went back to school and received his MBA at MIT and Harvard and completely surprised his wife. He now has his life back and resides in Boston, Massachusetts. He is a cast member of Quiet Explosions, Healing the Brain, available for rent on Amazon. And Kevin is one of the cast and crew members who will be part of my live Q&A discussion during my Brain Injury Awareness event on March 16th. Be sure to register for this free event at facesoftbi.com slash event. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Such a pleasure to have you here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, Kevin, I I think the best place to start is let's go back to um, how your injury happened um, and what what that looked like for you. I know you were actually injured um, when you were in active duty. Um, So tell us kind of, you know, what happened and how that kind of led you down this path. Sure. 
Yeah, so I, I was on my second deployment to Afghanistan. Um, it was in uh, September of 2011. Um, this is my, my second uh, combat deployment as a Green Beret. And I was working with the Afghan commandos in northern Afghanistan. Um, and I'd worked with actually the same unit of guys on my first deployment. So really lucky to be able to go back and work with the, the same people that you had worked with on the previous deployment and have that rapport already built up and the trust and kind of understanding one another. Um, and, and kind of just to give you an idea of like the frequency of, of special forces deployments, um, you know, we had deployed to that location in northern Afghanistan and Kunduz, Afghanistan in 2010. And we were there from January to um, January to August. And we went back to that same location in March of 2011. Um, so, you know, really kind of, you know, eight months in between the deployments mm-hmm. in, in that eight month period, um, you know, a month and a half in Thailand, um, two separate training iterations. And so the, um, I, I kind of say all that to, to paint a picture of how I feel like this kind of plays into everything is uh, you, you never, when you're a Green Beret or, you know, in the special operations community, you never really get an opportunity to take your foot off the gas pedal. And, you know, yeah. the, the kind of the stress of that um, adds to things quite a bit and uh, eventually manifests itself in one way or another. Um, but, you know, on the, so we were on our second deployment, we were seven months into it. It was supposed to be an 11 month deployment and our team was ordered to do a valley clearing operation in the northwestern part of the country. And so basically what would happen is, you know, we would get dropped off at one end of a valley by a helicopter. Um, there would be, you know, our team of Green Berets and some attachments to us. So maybe like, you know, 15 Americans and then there would be about 100 Afghan commandos with us in this, uh, on this mission. And that was pretty typical for any mission for us. And so we'd get dropped off at one end of a valley and we would search through these valleys and there'd be little clusters of like mud hut villages we talk to the people, try to gather some intelligence, look for weapons caches, and you know just keep doing this through each valley as we pass through, and then or through each village as we pass through the valley, and we'd get to kind of a designated pickup point anywhere between one to three days later by a helicopter. And so this was a pretty common mission set for us to do. You know, I'd done this a numerous amount of times, and I'd say probably every like one out of five times that we would do this type of mission. Um, we would get into some sort of engagement with the enemy firefight. And so on, on this day, um, you know, about an hour into it, as the sun is just starting to come up and peek over the mountains. And, you know, just when you're kind of realizing, like, how long the day is going to be, uh, the you know, fire, you know, firefight really broke out. And one of my teammates was uh, under some, some pretty heavy duress. And so that really kind of set the tone for the rest of the day. Um, you know, from that moment on, for the next about 10 hours or so, we were kind of going back and forth in this valley with a fight. We'd pick up. Um, there'd be lulls in it. You know, I say it's not like TV, right? If it was, if it was like a movie, everybody'd be out of ammunition in like five minutes. Um, a little bit <laughs> right. more methodical. It's more like a chess match. Um, and then in, in this uh, tenth hour of the firefight, well, I was going around the corner of a building. You know, the fight had really picked up at that point, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, felt like somebody came up and hit me in the stomach with a sledgehammer. And I just, you know, was lifted in the air. As soon as my body slammed off the ground, I realized I'd been shot right in the stomach, right underneath my body armor. And so, you know, went through the whole process of, uh, you know, the training kicked in, 
started to try to treat myself um, and, you know, padding up and down my leg, trying to figure out where I needed to, I had an intense pain running down my leg and trying to figure out where I needed to put a tourniquet because I thought I'd been shot in the leg. And when you, when mm-hmm. that's your mm-hmm. first thought, you think to yourself, okay, well, your artery's been hit, so you have a couple minutes to live. And I couldn't find any bleeding until I finally went up to my stomach and I just saw like a little hole and a little bit of blood and, you know, the bullet had gone through just like an inch below my body armor. And so there's nothing I could really do. I'm just kind of sitting out in the open and you know, a couple minutes go by. I get back on the radio. I call my teammates again to let them know how serious the situation was. You know, and then I look up and an Afghan soldier that I've been working with for a couple of years you know, picks me up on my body armor, drags me behind safety, and then my team floods in to start uh, working on me. And I could hear people in the background talking, like, hey, is Kevin going to make it or not? And, you know, like, you know, they didn't know that I could hear them. You know, they're saying, I don't know. Yeah. Bad. <laughs> right. uh, so they stabilized me, and they put me on a helicopter, and it was, you know, 10 minutes. 10 minute ride and you know, I'll never forget kind of being in that surgery tent and, you know, talking to the surgeon, he's asking me questions, you know, I'm asking him, am I going to live or not? And then, you know, he's like, do you have any last requests? And so I asked him for the bullet, uh, if he could save it. And he did I have it at home, but then I was fairly certain I was going to die. So I asked for a Catholic priest to give me my last rites. And I'll just never forget that mask coming down on my face and saying goodbye to this world and asking God for forgiveness for my sins. And about, I think it was my, my next recollection occurred about four days later when I asked someone if I'd gone to heaven or hell. And they said, neither. You're in Launchville Regional Medical Center in Germany. Oh, wow. And and in the movie, In Quiet Explosions, that's all actual footage that we see, correct? Yeah. You know, one of my uh, teammates just happened to have a helmet camera on uh, during mm-hmm. this and it was like right near me. You know, so really kind of caught everything on, on film there. You know, the, the treatment, pretty much everything except for me actually getting shot, you know, up and all the way up until the point of loading me onto the helicopter. So it's pretty cool to have that um, from having a bad day or something, you know, watch that and remind myself uh, that uh, I've had worse days than what's going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. So what? You know, the the injuries were, oh, so I was going to say that, you know, the injuries were were very severe um, and, and kind of made themselves even more present as time went by because the bullet it fractured my hip, it hit my colon, and it hit my femoral nerve, which paralyzed my left leg. And that's why I had so much pain in my leg. And, mm. you know, people didn't really see the full extent of the injuries for a couple months. You know, my hip healed, my stomach healed, but my leg started to kind of wither away to nothing because um, everybody kind of thought that the nerve would, would just kind of come back, but it was pretty evident that it wasn't going to. Mm. Yeah, and so what... I assume you came home after your hospital stay, hospital stay. Um, and then, you know, you're talking about your leg and the pain and, you know, it's invisible. Um, and at this point, you know, what, what are you thinking? Like what's going through your mind and, and what were doctors doing for you? If anything. 
Yeah. So I, I spent, um, you know, about a week in Germany, uh, a couple of weeks down in Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. A couple, you know, I was stationed at Fort Lewis, the first special forces group. So was in the uh, hospital there for a couple of days. Uh, from then I was released right, and started physical therapy at the first special forces group. So, you know, luckily for me, I had, you know, incredible therapists, you know, incredible doctors, um, you know, people were bending over backwards for me. Um, and, you know, I was 27 and a former college football player, mm-hmm. Green Beret. And so I'm like, well, I'm just going to like will myself to get better. Um, yeah, I'll never forget being in the intensive care unit in Germany, you know, yelling at my nurses, telling them I'd be running a marathon within a year. And you know, they're like, hey, honey, you're going to be lucky to be able to walk in a year. Um, so, you know, I, I remained incredibly optimistic, um, that I was just going to be able, like, like everything else in my life prior, I just will myself to get better. But over time, you know, that really started to, to show that, uh, it wasn't going to happen. Right? As my leg withers away to the, the size of my, my left arm. And, and I think that that was where I started to realize like, this is, this is going to be a lot more difficult uh, than we thought. And this might be permanent. You know, it's like I went to the University of Washington Neurology Clinic, and they were, you know, they could barely read my MRI, and you know, really ultimately had to reach out to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And so they were, at the time, really the only people that were actually able to, to help me um, with my leg, and, and they had an experimental procedure that they were working on that, uh, you know, eventually elected to, to undertake. Wow. And... <clears throat> Excuse me. So, at what point did you start thinking something was wrong as far as, you know, you started having PTSD, but you probably didn't know exactly what it was at first. Um, so, at what point did all that start creeping in? I know you said in the beginning you were super optimistic and you were going to will yourself to get better, and then, you know, slowly that kind of faded. Um, so what did that transition look like? Yeah, I think there was kind of a culmination of things where, you know, I mentioned earlier about kind of the, the, the intensity of special forces and your deployments. Yeah. It doesn't give you a whole lot of time to, to I guess, take a knee, assess what's going on and, and think, right? And because you're just always going, right? There's never really much of a chance to process things. Um, I think, you know, once I, I kind of saw the extent of the injuries, you know, and, and, and understanding I had to go get another surgery at the Mayo Clinic, um, and right around that time frame when my teammates was killed, um, just a couple weeks before the team was supposed to come home, uh, I think that was where I, I, I'm, like, when I look back now, that's where I mark things starting to, to go downhill a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, after this, after the surgery, I mean, I was in like more pain than I was after I had been shot. And, you know, that was, I think when, when things, I started to process things, right. That's what was like, all right, you know, for my wife and I, even it was hard for us. We had barely seen each other for three years. And, you know, she said to me one day, like, I'm just still waiting for you to like drag your bags out, pack and leave again, uh, which was kind of the common occurrence. You come home for a couple of weeks, month or two, maybe pack your bags, go someplace else. And like, I was almost waiting to do that too. But once I realized that wasn't going to happen and had this incredibly wrong, long road of, of physical therapy ahead of me, I think that's when I started to process things. And once I started to process things, that's when I um, 
started to feel things, I guess, and think about things and have survivor's guilt and, you know, staying up at night crying and questioning God why he allowed me to survive my injuries just to suffer so much and be in so much pain all the time. And so I, I think that that's, that's, that's when things kind of started for me. And, you know, I just, I can't even imagine, well, I kind of can, you know, I had a lot of chronic pain with my own injury, um, but not to the level of what you were dealing with. But that chronic pain cycle is unlike anything. I mean, you know, the brain injury was one thing and having to deal with all the cognitive and the dizzy and the balance, but, but the actual pain cycle and not being able to get out of pain, it's just, it's simply exhausting. And, you know, just not having an end in sight um, of when that pain might actually ever go away, if ever. And, you know, I'm sure with, with your leg, like, I mean, it had to have been tenfold of what I dealt with. Um, but that, that starts to kind of wear you down. And it, I know for me, I, you know, I started pondering killing myself, like, gosh, you know, if I, if I jumped off that, I, I had a lofted apartment at the time. And I'm like, if I jumped off the landing, you know, would that actually kill me? Or would that make me worse than I am right now? And, and like, I knew I wasn't yeah. going to kill myself. But it definitely was in my mind every day. Yeah, I mean, luckily, you know, for me, and you didn't really have thoughts of suicide. But I think it, uh, you know, I, I say all of this stuff happened for a reason for me, to be able to walk a mile in other people's shoes, experience these mm, things, have yep. a better understanding of people. And, and so I, I will certainly say for sure, after going through all that, like that endless pain cycle that you're talking about, right, yeah. not thinking that it was ever going to end and, and wondering, like, what kind of life I could lead, right, I definitely understood why people killed themselves, Um and, you know, chose to take their own lives when they just don't see an end to something or no hope uh, because the, the chronic pain was maddening. Like I, I was like, I, I thought I was losing my mind at times um, in terms of for like how much, you know, it wasn't even just like hip pain. It was just pain everywhere. <laughs> my whole body would be in random, uh, random pain. And, you know, I think that's, you know, luckily um, I reached out to the psychologist within our unit um, to, early on and to, to begin talking with him. And, you know, he started to show me some holistic ways to start to deal with this chronic pain, you know, with like meditation, yoga, um, because I, I just, you know, was, was basically addicted to my pain meds and needed to get off. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise I was staring, staring that down for the rest of my life. And so that, that, that experience, I think kind of opened my eyes to thinking about um, different ways to, to go about this process to heal my mind, heal my body, heal my soul. And, you know, realizing that, um, you know, would need like alternative ways, I guess, you know, I, I say that the people that have helped me the most throughout this whole process, like, um, you know, to, 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 to bring in the pain levels to increase my mobility to get me back to where I wanted to be or, or, or folks that didn't necessarily kind of like, you know, kick it down the middle people that were, you know, somewhat on, on the fringes of, of what they were doing in their fields. Mm -hmm. And so how did you finally come 
to find help. Um, what what was that part of the journey like? Like you you knew you wanted to get off the pain meds, but I'm sure you didn't yeah. know how. Yeah, you know, luckily for me, my wife is a nurse. Um, she's actually working on her PhD in nursing right now. So, and I think for for me, it was kind of like three things um, you know, in terms of getting help. Right? It's I say ask for help, uh, receive help, and give help. Right? I asked for help early on, and that made all the difference in the world. Right? Receive help. Like my wife had best intentions for me, and she was very much a tough love person. I think a lot of times when you have someone that you love, you're afraid to help them because you don't want you think you're going to hurt them. You no, know, but ultimately you just kind of let the, the cycle perpetuate itself. And so. You know, even though I was very frustrated and angry with my wife at times, um, I, I received the help that she was giving me because she knew me best and had my best interests, right? So she, when she tells me to get off of pain meds, I'm like, okay, right, it probably needs to happen. And then I would say give help too. Yeah. You, when you're going through a struggling, uh, tough time, you, you think to yourself, there's no way that I can help anybody else because of the condition I'm in. Ultimately, that's the best time to help someone, right, because it's going to give you a sense of purpose and meaning and it's going to help you understand that maybe the situation you're in isn't as bad as you thought that it was. So I think those three things are what really you know, kind of got me, uh, picked me back up, got me back up in the right mm-hmm. direction, you know, and got me off my pain meds. And then I had this light at the end of the tunnel. I was like, all right, why? Well, I'm going to retire from the military and then I want to go to a top graduate school. And so I you know, started studying for my, my um, graduate school exams and like shifted all my focus towards that. And so that gave me that purpose, that sense of meaning, but it also gave me the reason to not be on pain meds, to be optimistic um, and, and, you know, to try to, to push forward. So that, mm-hmm. that happened, you know, in the 2012, 2013 timeframe. And you know, I was fortunate enough to, to get into graduate school um, at MIT and Harvard to a dual master's program. Um, but but that uh, honestly just kind of presented like a whole new array of challenges. And what were those challenges? Yeah, you know, kind of like the immediate needs of the the injuries, right? You know, it's you thinking, all right, like you know, first we're gonna fix your your broken hip and your stomach, and you're gonna have the surgery, and then you know, you're gonna get your you know, over the course of eighteen months get your uh, mobility back in your left leg. Um, and so th- those are very much things like kind of on the exterior. And I would say, you know, when I went to graduate school, um, a lot of the stuff kind of uh, internally, right, mental, emotionally, right, those are that that was when I had to start working on those things. And they started to, to really present themselves at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was still in intense pain. We talk about chronic pain cycle all throughout graduate school. I mean, in between classes, I might go and lay down on the floor in a study room just to, like, relieve some pressure off of my back or my neck or my shoulders. Um, I look back now, I have, like, no clue <laughs> that's how I was able to make it through there. But, yeah. you know, I had about a week in between getting out of the military and starting school, right? And within the first, like, month and a half of school, we had our first kid. And oh, wow. you know, transitioning out you of the military. You a little bit going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we really – stuffed a lot into one thing and you know, transitioning out of the military like that is is not easy to begin with 
know, but then putting yourself in that very hyper-competitive, stressful environment, um, like at an MIT, where uh, you know, incredible school, but you know, academically rigorous. Um, and I was like, wow, I don't know what to talk to my classmates about. Um, how do I talk to them about what I did in my 20s, right, in a way that they understand it? Um, so I felt very much alone. Um, and it's not to say my, my classmates were amazing, right? Like, you know, they wanted to, to speak with me, to talk to me, to understand. I just didn't know how to, right? And I, I was working harder than I never worked in my life. But um, on that token, right, I was doing probably the worst I'd ever done academically. Uh, so it was it was very hard for me, and then that that's kind of what I realized too. Is like I, I didn't feel like my brain was like functioning the way that it had been prior, and like I couldn't help myself from walking into a classroom or a room and wondering like, okay, well like what like what corner would I clear first, or like if people would stop mm-hmm. in a doorway or mm-hmm. stop on the stairs, like I would just like lose my mind, and I think. I started to real. that's when I started to understand more about the post-traumatic stress because I was completely away from my, my safety blanket and all of my friends and everybody back at like my unit. And now I was in a whole group of, like I was the only, there's other veterans, but I was the only green beret in my class. And so now I'm like, wait a second, this stuff's probably not normal. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting how like, your just your military um, training kind of just was constantly playing in the background, so to speak. And you um, don't even so, know it really, I think, until you're not yeah. in that environment. Like that's what, you know, when I'm walking to take the subway and I'm thinking about how I'm going to take cover if a firefight broke out or use terrain to my advantage. It's like, yeah, that's not, uh, you don't have to think that way anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Yeah. Um, so Kevin, how did you come to be a part of the Quiet Explosions movie? How how did that transpire? Yeah. So you know Andrew Marr, the founder of the Warrior Angels Foundation, a good buddy of mine. Um, when I was back, we were in First Special Forces group together, and we'd see each other in the gym every single day. Uh, so got to know each other pretty well from that. And I got out. Andrew went on another deployment and we kind of lost touch. And I think it was my last year of graduate school where I was just like, something is wrong. Like something is wrong here. Um, I, I, I'm not sleeping at night. I'm having panic attacks. I can't lose weight despite eating really healthy and working out. I have zero energy whatsoever. My mood changes on a dime. Uh, I can't like so hard for me to focus in class and, and, and do my work. Um, and so, right, and I'm starting to say myself, well, I'm like, are you even going to be able to work when you graduate? Because right? I, I could make my schedule to how I needed to be to suit all my nuances. But I was like, that's not how the real world is going to work. And right around that time, I saw some stuff on Facebook. And I was like, oh, that's Andrew Marr. And I saw like the Warrior Angel stuff and I started kind of researching a little bit and, and he and I reconnected um, through social media and we started talking and I'm like, hey, look, man, like everybody thinks that my life is amazing. Like that I'm this model veteran for transition, Harvard, MIT, I'm going to go to work for Goldman Sachs after this. Um, but 
I'm struggling, man. And I kind of laid, laid it all out for him. And he said, look, you know, same things are happening to me. And he's like, what? I think we can help out. Like, let's get your blood work done. We'll hook you up with Dr. Gordon. And you know, we'll, we'll just take it from there. And he's like, if that's not the problem, then we'll cross that off and find something else. Uh, so, you know, went through, did the blood work with, um, with, with Dr. Gordon, met with him. And my cortisol levels were through the roof. And my vitamin D levels were very low. Um, my testosterone was very low. Um, my thyroid, I was in hypothyroidism, right? It wasn't functioning properly. And because of the blood work, like I found out that I have Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune disease that affects your thyroid um, and, and the, the regulation of it. So, so met with Dr. Gordon um, and we walked through all of the blood work and then he started me on his protocol. And I was actually in New York City uh, doing job training. So I was away from my family. And so I didn't see him for a month. And I was on, on the protocol for a month and I get home and my wife is like, Oh wow. They're like, you're back to normal again. And that's, that's the best way for me to describe it and how I felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When, so that, when you're, yeah. when your family sees the noticeable changes, that's when you know something's working. Cause sometimes we think we're feeling better, but it's so validating when other people can see the results too. And so that, that's, you know, I've, I've maintained, you know, even closer contact with Andrew ever since then um, and Dr. Gordon and, you know, was, was honored to be asked in the film uh, to kind of share my experience and, uh, you know, what I've been through, what my family's been through. Yeah. And the movie does such a great job of just portraying, what everyone was feeling and what they had gone through. And, um, you know, I know you had some of your military footage and so did Andrew. And, um, and, and I love that Jerry's vision for the movie was to have military athletes and civilians um, to really, you know, encompass, cause I, I said this in my podcast with her, but um when we think of TBI and PTSD, we often think of military and we think of athletes, but we don't think of the neighbor next door who was in a car accident or fell on the ice. Um, and so it, it really brought a broader awareness of how this, you know, affects three and a half million Americans each year. So um, such a great movie and it really gives people an inside look at what it's like to live with TBI and PTSD. So, um, you know, thank you for being a part of that movie and thank you for being here today, sharing your story. I would love to just wrap up by asking, you know, what, what are your final thoughts for anyone listening who may still be struggling? You know, I would say, don't give up. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, For a long time, I, it was like this very, very faint light for me. But uh, mm-hmm. the fact that I didn't give up, right, is why I'm here and why I am yeah. where I am today. So you know, just just keep fighting, right? Go out there, continue to find answers, right, because they're out there for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're out there. You just have to dig a little deeper sometimes. Well, Kevin, thank you so much yeah. for being here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
And thank you, everyone, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And just a reminder to register for our event on March 16th at facesoftbi.com slash event. Another big thank you to our sponsor, Integrated Brain Centers. You can find them online at integratedbraincenters.com. Again, you can also find this podcast streaming on most platforms, such as iTunes, or you can find it directly at facesoftbi.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And also you can join Amy's TBI tribe on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone, and I'll see you in the next episode.